Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. This is episode 266. Good to have you with us. So in a recent sermon, I, I made a, well, it's not really a side point. It's sort of a foundational point, but it acted something of a side point early on in the sermon. And I want to develop it a little bit here. There is a tendency on the part of ecclesiastical establishments or religious organizations to start at the wrong end. Jesus famously said that the Sabbath was not made for man. Mankind was not created in order that the Sabbath might have someone to keep it. Rather, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's how it goes. The parishioners, church members, were not created for the leaders to have someone to govern. Rather, God established church government, elders and pastors, shepherds, in order to give them to the people. It ought to be a gift to the people. But there's a, there's a constant pressure to interpret the relationship in a way that is a benefit to the leaders and not to the people. So, um, and Ezekiel points to this. In, in Ezekiel 34.2, the prophet complains about shepherds who feed only themselves. Shepherds who feed only themselves. And at the end of Philippians, when Paul is thanking the Philippians for the financial gift that they sent, he falls all over himself to say, "Not that I, I'm not bringing this up because I, I'm angling for additional giving or I want you to give me more. I'm not talking about this because I'm the beneficiary. He said, I'm talking about this because I want you to have the blessing of being giving people. So he's keeping the focus in the right direction. The apostle wants a blessing to accrue to the givers, but he he makes sure that they understand that he's not talking about this because he is hungry for the blessing of the financial gift coming to him. And here's a striking example of the same kind of thing. Near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's chapter 5, verse 23, I think it's 23, Jesus says, if you're presenting your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother has ought against you. you. You remember that your brother is peeved with you. You've got, he, he's got some, he's upset with you. Jesus says, stop right where you are, leave your gift at the altar, go reconcile with your brother, and then come back and offer your gift. First, it should be said that I'm not talking about intractable situations where you have attempted to make peace with your brother 28 times and he's not having any. Uh, the apostle says somewhere else, as far as it's possible with you, remain at peace with all men. So I recognize that it's not always possible. But let's say you you remember that someone is mad at you in the congregation, and you also know that if you had just gone to talk to them, 30 seconds would have put everything right, and you just hadn't gotten to it because it would have been humbling or embarrassing or something. You just You just had put it off, and you realize that they have something against you, Jesus says, stop what you're doing and go put it right. right? Now, overwhelmingly uh, in the church, 
when people talk about this, they talk about not taking communion until you put it right with your brother. Uh, But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, don't tithe if you've not put it right. (laughs) So this this is a very different proposition. So in communion, the church is dispensing something. The, the, the ministers are uh, overseeing the giving out of the wine and the bread. The parishioners come to church not having the wine and bread, and they are given the wine and bread. And this is an example of the church withholding something from the people until they go put something right. Okay, But that's not what the Lord was talking about. Uh, the Lord was saying, you know that, um, that building fund? Not one nickel, not one nickel should go to the church until you've put that right with your brother. Your gift is, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a financial donation. He's talking about a gift on the altar. He says, don't, don't give it. Don't give until you've put that right. But that would sort of, that, where does that pinch? Well, if you don't get to take communion until you put things right with your brother, it pinches you. If you don't get to make a donation to the building fund until you put it right with your brother, or you don't uh, you don't get to donate to the minister's salary until you put it right, well, I wonder why the point is not made this way. Well, actually, I don't wonder why. I think I know why. Always will be God. So, continuing on with episode two sixty six. We come to hamartiology. Hamartiology is a subject that we are all, unfortunately, uh, we all unfortunately have a major in, and we are by nature better students than we ought to be. Now, some might think that we should stay away from the subject entirely, but in my mind, it would be better to meet it head on, looking at what Scripture teaches about our shenanigans. What does the Bible tell us? Well, our word uh, today is eparezo, eparezo which two times is rendered as despitefully use, and one time it is rendered as falsely accuse. Two times des- uh, despitefully use, and one time as falsely accuse. So the Lord is instructing us how to react when others treat us poorly, and in this case, really poorly. Matthew 5.44 But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So there it is. Our response to being despitefully used, I mean, vindictively used, uh, maliciously treated, that's what he's talking about, vindictively, maliciously, despitefully used, our response to all of that should be fourfold. Love, bless, do good, and pray. Love, bless, do good, and pray. Three of these responses are also found in a passage in Luke, it talks about the same thing. Luke, uh, Luke 6.28 says, Bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. I said three of these things. It's just two. Uh, bless and pray. Okay? In Matthew, it says do good and love also. Here it says bless and pray. The same word is translated as false accusation in First Peter having a good conscience that, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accused your good conversation in Christ. That's 1 Peter 3.16. Now, of course, the Lord's instructions would also apply here, the earlier instructions about love, bless, do good, and pray. 
But Peter is assuming the power of a quiet refutation also. The Lord doesn't say, and Peter doesn't use the word refute, but Peter implies a refutation. He says, live with such a good conscience, such that false accusations fall to the ground, and the accusers are thereby made ashamed of themselves. So, you want to live in such a way that when people accuse you, the bystanders of of some outrageous behavior, the bystanders who hear it laugh out loud. One time, many years ago, I was on the East Coast. I forget why I was there. But while on the East Coast, I was there for, uh, I was speaking somewhere somehow, and I needed a haircut. So I, um, I sought out a barber uh, in this uh, town I was not that familiar with anymore. And I was chatting with the barbers, uh, with the barber as he cut my hair, as the way some barbers do. And this was right around the time where there had been a major uptick of um, televangelist scandals. There, you know, there, there was some, had been some misdeeds, some uh, misbehavior. I forget, I forget if it was Jimmy Swaggart or, oh, I've forgotten the name, Tammy, uh, the Bakers, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. I forget who it was, but it was something along those lines. There was some sort of um, public to-do about televangelist scandals. And this barber, I, d- I don't know if he's a Christian, or, a, but he didn't strike me as a, as a pious man or a believer or an evangelical. But we, were, we got onto these televangelists, and he just said, by way of common knowledge, he said, ah, they'll never get old Billy, though, <laughs> talking about Billy Graham. So Billy Graham was, on these matters, above reproach. He, uh, he conducted himself in an upstanding conscientious way, and people knew it. So, um, it's, this is the kind of refutation that Peter's talking about. Live in such a way uh, that when someone makes the accusation, everybody just laughs. No, that's not, that's not possible. God don't never change. He's so, carrying on with episode 266 of our podcast, my book review is, uh, this time, is a book called Original Intent by David Barton. Original Intent by David Barton. Now, David Barton uh, made, uh, there was, there was uh, something of a controversy a few years ago. David Barton had, had published a book on Thomas Jefferson, which argued that Jefferson was not as much of an infidel as is popularly claimed, which I think is, I think that's true. There are two founders, Franklin and Jefferson, who could plausibly be accused of having been influenced by deism. But as deists, they were very, they were very poor deists. In other words, both of them, both Jefferson and Franklin, believed that God was a personal God who interfered in the affairs of men. And uh, Jefferson famously said that he, when he remembers that God is just, he trembles for his country. And Franklin said that if a sparrow can't fall to the ground apart from the father's notice, how how can an empire rise without his uh, aid and notice? And this was when Franklin was calling for for prayer. So uh, those two men were deistic, I'll put it that way. And I'd I'd probably prefer to say they were quasi-deistic. Anyway, David Barton wrote a book arguing that Jefferson was 
even a little bit better than that, probably. And a, a gentleman named William Throckmorton, Warren Throckmorton, sorry, who is one of the uh, lefties or soft liberal lefties teaching at Grove City College uh, at the time. I believe he's moving on after this year or, or anyway, there was a Grove City controversy, which we're not going to get into, uh, but Throckmorton taught there. He wrote a book uh, refuting Barton, etc. And I read both Barton's book. I read Barton's book and I read Throckmorton's book and, and Throckmorton made some good points. But one of the things that Barton does very well, even if you take issue with some of his conclusions, is Barton is very good at assembling in one place, quote after quote after quote, from primary sources. Uh, this book, Original Intent, has to do with the separation of church and state, and it has to do, and, and he discusses at length and in great detail and quotes many, many, many passages from the founding era that demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that, uh, that we were not a secular nation in the modern sense at the founding, not at all. So, for example, in Barton, in this book by Barton, he, um, he has a number of quotes from a Supreme Court case that was handed down in 1872 or 1892, one of those uh, late 19th century. We'll just say late 19th century. The case was Holy, the, whole, uh, the United States versus Holy Trinity, uh, which is a, a very uh, fun name for a court case like that, uh, where a prosecutor had brought a case against a church. I believe the church was in New York City, and the church was uh, uh, called Holy Trinity. And there was a law that prohibited the hiring of foreign nationals, one of these bogus bogus laws when it comes to economics. But you couldn't hire uh, foreigners to do, uh, to do things here. And this church called a British pastor. And uh, the prosecutor brought a uh, suit against them, uh, charges against them. And this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court found for Holy Trinity, said they could have their British minister. And, but, but then, and this is quite striking, that they, uh, one of the reasons they, they said they could have um, this British minister is that the United States was a Christian nation. And they go back, uh, they go back to Columbus, and they they just um, argue from the beginning, from from Columbus on the fundamental orders of Connecticut, sort of the original founding documents. And in the late nineteenth century, a Supreme Court decision found that the United States is a Christian nation. Now Barton is great for for digging up quotes like that, and much of the book. Is simply an assemblage of quotes. Even if you, even if you are suspicious of Barton's reasoning or conclusion, uh, the book is still a treasure trove. It's really, uh, really worthwhile. 